This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 486. Us as human beings, we like to look at success. We like to aspire to be successful like some of the people that we admire. But the thing that really brings us together and builds that cohesion is actually the struggle. What distinguishes the truly exceptional from the merely great? The highest performers don't use tricks or hacks to achieve greatness. They use mental frameworks that fundamentally change the way they see the world. They've learned how to unlock their hidden genius in order to reach their full potential. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each week, I interview another successful and inspiring author, and we talk about his or her latest book and their unique insights on a number of different topics. I am really excited today because I'm finally getting a chance to sit down with the author of a book called Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. That author's name is Paulina Maranova Pompliano, and I'll be asking her to share about why she believes we should approach creativity as a muscle you can exercise as opposed to a talent you either have or you don't and the importance of contemplating unexpected things together, how listening to yourself and talking to yourself differ, and which one of the two you should embrace and why, and what it looks like to lead from the bottom up rather than top down, plus much, much more. If many in your life who surround you aren't the type of people who read books, who maybe don't cherish things like personal and professional development, lifelong learning, and those types of things, then if I got a deal for you, you want to make sure you join the Read to Lead community online because it's filled with hundreds of people just like that. Not only can you network with those people there, when you join the community, you'll enjoy a monthly live stream led by me, our monthly guest expert trainings, our monthly challenges where this month the theme is public and impromptu speaking and how to get better at it, weekly business book summaries, exclusive articles, discounts on tons of resources, and much, much more. All of that comes with a very inexpensive Read to Lead Plus membership. How inexpensive? Try $9 a month. And you can even try it free for 14 days to see if it's exciting as I just made it out to be. Just go to jeffbrown.me to check it out now. Again, try it free for 14 days. Then after that, it's a mere 9 bucks a month. One more time, that web address is jeffbrown.me. Paulina Maranova Pompliano is the founder of The Profile, a media organization that studies successful people and companies. Previously, she spent five years at Fortune, where she wrote more than 1,300 articles and earned the trust of prominent investors and entrepreneurs. As the author and editor of Term Sheet, Fortune's industry-leading deal-making newsletter, she interviewed Melinda Gates, Steve Case, Tamath Palahapatiya, Stephen Schwartzman, and more. Her new book is called Hidden Genius. The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. Well, Paulina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for responding to my, my tweet a few weeks or whatever it is we call those now. I'm not sure if they're still called tweets, but I'm so glad that you're here and excited to talk with you about your brand new book. I'm so excited to be here, Jeff. I have to start by asking you to share with us. Our listeners want to know about this past life that included a budding acting career. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I never thought it would come to this. No. <laughs> so I, I gather that you've read my the acknowledgement section. Uh, <laughs> but uh, by the way, fun fact, mm. every single memoir that I read, I always go to the acknowledgements. I think that's the most fascinating part of a book. I love it. <laughs> so, okay. So, so when I was young, little uh, in school, I think my parents did a really great job of letting me try a lot of things, mm. even if they thought I might fail or not be good <laughs> at them or not particularly enjoy them. Right. Um, they let me do it because it helped. It would help like, you know, me discover what I really do love. Mm. Um, one of those things was I was convinced that I would be an actress, even though, even though I was a very shy, very introverted kid. So I don't know why I had it in my head that I would make an amazing <laughs> actress. And both my parents are chemical engineers. So I went to this high school that had an emphasis on science. So there was a science magnet program and a performing arts magnet program. Ah. And like an overachiever, I was like, I'll do both. So I got <laughs> I got into the science one, 
but then there was an audition with the performing arts one mm-hmm. and the audition didn't go so hot and that was kind of the first time that i thought oh wow like that i i really like failed miserably at that but it it almost it gave me a weird drive and competitiveness with myself where okay. a few years later i ended up taking an acting elective in the school with the same teacher who was there during the audition but he didn't remember me and <laughs> i so wasn't that memorable <laughs> yeah and and i ended up actually doing really well um oh. in that class so then i was like okay i feel i feel a little bit of redemption <laughs> <laughs> now in that first audition were you were you nervous going into that I was so nervous and it it was funny because I had practiced by myself, but it's one thing to practice by yourself and another thing to actually do it. And after the audition, it was so bad. When I took the acting class, I just remember that the teacher told us, told the class, before you go up on that stage to perform, because our final exam was, you know, a mon- delivering a monologue to the class. Mm. And he said, before you get up on stage to perform, I need you to be the person that you are, uh, to embody the person whose mon- monologue you're giving. Yeah. And that kind of gave me the idea of creating an alter ego, which is in the book. Yes. And I, and I want to give Paulina some credit here because in the acknowledgments, she says, with regard to acting, let's all try to forget about my acting phase. <laughs> so thank you for indulging me. So good. <laughs> so good. And I even tied it back to the book. Did you like that? I love that. I love that. Um, something I started doing about a year ago was teaching a, a note making I call it versus note-taking, uh, note-making mastery cohort. And, and one of the things that I teach, uh, depending on the type of note-take you are, I'm a, I'm a gardener. I like for my notes to sort of grow from the ground up and kind of take on a mind of their own versus what might be a, a librarian where your structure is hierarchical and folder and subfolder and that sort of thing. And one of the things I talk about is just the importance uh, and what that brings to the table with regard to seemingly disparate ideas having the chance Mm -hmm. to collide into one another, right? Thinking of creativity as a muscle that you can exercise as opposed to a talent you either have or you don't has come up numerous times on the show. And I want you to talk about the importance of making new connections and, as you put it, contemplating unexpected things together as that relates to creativity. Yes, and I love the idea and the terminology of collision of ideas mm-hmm. because not very many people think of it that way, but it's exactly what it is. Mm. Uh, a lot of times when you have ideas, those are usually produced from the collision of other ideas in your mind. Mm. So I think a lot of people, a lot of creative people like to say, you know, oh, I just wait for the muse or I wait to be inspired. <laughs> And I sit around and then, and then I can create. I don't know if to me, creativity, I have always seen it as a skill just because after years of journalism, there is no, I'm going to wait to feel inspired. You have a deadline. So (laughs) you have to write the article. Otherwise you will get fired. Mm. Um, So, so to me, it was like creativity just, it it comes once you start doing the work. It's not something you wait around for. Mm. And I was very interested to see that in the book I talk about, there's this research that was done where they gave uh, a test group, you know, two different words like rowboat and parrot. And they asked people whether they, there are any similarities between them. And the, the more creative people were able to find links between totally disparate words, mm. um, even though there aren't any obvious ones. And, you know, this goes back to Leonardo da Vinci and how he would throw sponges of paint up against the wall and watch uh, them drip down and contemplate the shapes. And he would get ideas from that. Or um, mm. Chef Grant Ackett, he, he, his specialty was food and the dining experience, but he would get ideas from a museum or listening to mm. the tempo of a song or watching leaves fall to the ground. It's constant um, bombardment of ideas. I think Grant calls it looking at the world through a kaleidoscope of, in his case, food, a kaleidoscope of food. For me, it's looking at the world through a kaleidoscope of like human stories. It depends on what you're trying to achieve, but if right. in a kaleidoscope, so interesting because it's like a lens, but it's kind of distorted and then different ideas come at you and then they get meshed into something different. 
So it's like the idea of collision of ideas or um, the the melting of different ideas together, uh, I think is very, very interesting and in helping you become more creative and not just sitting around and waiting. And the story you tell of, of the chef, uh, Grant is his name, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, just to open my eyes, uh, because I, I like to think I'm good at that or do that really well, but I, I, it challenged me because the places where he was looking for inspiration from were just so far from what he does. And it, it caused me to, to stretch and to think about going further than I'm currently going with regard to disparate ideas or, or, or relationships between seemingly non-connected things. There's a role here, I think, too, that, that risk plays uh, with regard to, to creativity. Talk about embracing risk and, and, and being open to failure when it comes to being creative. Yeah, some of the most creative people are willing to fail spectacularly in the name of being creative. (laughs) Um, One of those people is uh, Pixar co-founder Ed Catmull. And his mind is just so interesting because he talks a lot about how failure is what fuels creativity at Pixar. And the way he explains it is if we can explain one of our ideas for a film in 30 seconds or less, the so-called elevator pitch. Mm. If we can explain it in an elevator pitch, then it's not an original idea and there's no point in pursuing it because it's probably derivative with what already exists. So he says, if you try to explain Ratatouille in 30 seconds or less, he'd be like, there's a there's a rat in a kitchen who's trying to cook and it sounds disgusting. It does not sound <laughs> like an award-winning film. In Toy Story, same thing. It could be really commercial. It could flop. But, mm. but once you start explaining it and then there's nuance in the context, but it'll take you more than 30 seconds. And he talks about the idea that you have to aim to do something that could fail. Mm. And if they do a film that's really successful, they, they have a rule where they don't replicate the same formula or format again, even though that format works, mm. because that, that's kind of cheating. It's, it, it could lead to complacency and it's not as original as the next one could be. Grant Ackett has the exact same thing in his kitchen where he tells his staff, Every six months, I want you to blow up the menu and start from scratch. Even if this was the best menu we've ever had, I want you to start over. Because it's scary, (laughs) but that uh, breeds um, experimentation and there's a risk of failing and all this stuff that really, really prevents you from becoming complacent. If you came to me and you said, Jeff, we're going to do a movie around Barbie. I would have thought yeah. you were nuts. <laughs> and look what I know, right. because that, that movie's done pretty well so far. Absolutely. I'm a fan of this sort of stoic philosophy of, of, of hard choices, easy life, easy mm. choices, hard life. Does that relate to, or is that the same thing you're saying when you talk about considering uh, manufacturing hardship in our lives? Absolutely. I think that a lot of people think of hardship is something that happens to you. And in the book, uh, I have a chapter on mental toughness that basically talks about like, how can you make sure that you harden your mind or um, that you make the hard choices today that could lead to an easier life in the future? Right. Tommy Caldwell, a rock climber, calls this elective hardship. So you voluntarily put yourself in daily moments of hardship so that when life slaps you in the face and puts you on your butt, <laughs> you don't completely lose your mind or lose yourself. You know that you have the skills to rebuild or to get back up and to be resilient. And the whole idea of being resilient, David Goggins, who's a former Navy SEAL, says, do one thing a day that absolutely sucks, that you absolutely do not want to do, because those little moments of hardship can prepare you for for the future. And it's not just physical, like a physical stress. It's not just, oh, run two miles or train for a marathon or things like that. It's like, okay, I really don't enjoy negotiating. In what situations can I put myself today where it forces me to have to negotiate with someone? And after that experience, a a little part of you is like, okay, I did that and I didn't die. And it (laughs) it, it helps you um, become more mentally resilient. Mm, I gave that talk in front of 400 people and I'm still alive. 
<laughs> exactly. I don't know if you're willing to to share this or if you like to keep this sort of close to the vest. Of all these people that you've interviewed, are there two or three that stand out as having been like honest to goodness favorites or maybe full circle type moments, like someone you, that you idolized or looked up to that you had a chance to sit down with? Ironically, <laughs> I mean, I've interviewed, you know, Melinda Gates and, and some really mm. Steve Schwartzman, some really successful, objectively successful people. Right. But... I've never, how do I put this? In the book, I say, I, I aim to learn, not idolize. Mm-hmm. I've never spoken to someone very traditionally successful and came out of it as, oh my goodness, this person has it all figured out. I want their life. <laughs> the, actually, the one person <laughs> who I, I really, really enjoyed talking to Mm. was Robert Hogue, who most people w- wouldn't know. I-, I feature him in the book, but you know he- he's not traditionally successful, as we like to call it. Um, right. He was simply born with uh, deformity on his face. He had a tumor in the middle of his face. Right. It required a lot of surgeries to get his eyes back to normal positions. And you know, all his life, he was called ugly. He was bullied. He, you know, the, the, the whole, the whole thing. Mm. And he came out of that experience having led a really beautiful life. And the way he was speaking, it was, I mean, that, if that's not mental resilience, he's probably one of the most mentally tough people I've met mm. because you're not only dealing with physical pain from surgeries, but you're also dealing with emotional pain on a daily basis. His mom didn't want to take him home from the hospital. Mm. The only reason he got to go home is because the family held a vote of whether to bring the baby home from the hospital um, because they knew he would have a really hard life. And through every step of the way, he's faced some sort of really, really difficult thing that would bring most people to their knees. But mm. somehow he's reframed the word ugly as something that he's proud of. Um, and he, he talks about he, he's used his experience to say, basically, you discount me as a human being if you're just trying to be polite and you're not asking me, hey, why do you have these bumps or those scars or, you know? Um, So his whole idea is like, if you lead a life looking at the world through a curiosity filter, then we're all better for it because the world becomes more empathetic and less divisive. So to me, that's like the type of person I'm really, really drawn to. Mm -hmm. While I'm thinking about it, as it came to mind, I was going to ask you toward the end uh, of my questions about the book, but my guess is I'll forget. And so I want to ask you while I'm thinking about it. It's funny, Harriman House, your publisher, mm-hmm. I was not familiar with until just a few weeks ago when in the span of, of just a couple of weeks, I saw something from you online and, and reached out to you, as you know, on Twitter and, and got your mm-hmm. book. And then there was another book I was reading called The Illusion of Choice uh, by mm. Richard Schotten and both on the same publisher. And I, had, I don't think I've ever read a book from Harriman House before. Um, and one of the things I loved as I was opening up the book in both your and Richard's book is that you can download a free ebook. I wish more publishers uh, did that. I'm just curious yeah. to know as, as an author, what was it like? And I can cut this out if you want, but what was it like working with Harriman House, that process? No, it was it was truly awesome. And I so I didn't know anything about Harriman House either. Uh, and I was not planning to write a book at all until Chris from Harriman House, one of the editors, reached out to me and was like, I, I've been reading your newsletter. If your thoughts ever turn to writing a book, let us know. And I was like, huh, I've never you know, talk to a publisher before that would be interesting. So I started talking to them and never in my mind did I even entertain, oh, I'm going to pitch my book idea to other publishers. I honestly just saw this as an exercise of can I write a book? Right. And I spoke with Morgan Housel, who wrote The Psychology of Money that sold over 3 million copies. And he had been published by Herman House after a bunch of other New York publishers or US-based publishers denied him. Mm. Um, and he told me that he had the best experience and that was all I needed. They, they were truly, truly remarkable. That is so great to hear. I love, and I'm a geek this way, I love the cover. I love how your book looks. I love how it feels. I love how it's laid out. The call outs with the quotes on the various pages and all that. The bits of genius at the end. I just, the whole, I mean, I'm sure much of that was, was you, you had input on too, but I just, I loved it all. Yeah, no, they, they definitely had a lot of input there uh, because I, the way my brain works is not, in design by any stretch. So they very much informed how it should flow. Um, So what's the difference between listening to yourself 
and uh, talking to yourself? And, and, and why should we avoid the former and embrace the latter? So ever since I wrote about this, I started noticing it everywhere. Mm. And it's very much the nuance between, let's say you're running a marathon because it comes up in physical feats a lot. But let's say you're running a marathon and your foot starts hurting. Immediately, your internal voice is usually, my foot hurts. Can I make it another 16 miles? Oh my God, am I going to finish this race? And it's it's very um, it's like a panicked voice, <laughs> and then <laughs> that's that's listening to yourself, mm-hmm. and then there's talking to yourself, which is getting a hold of that voice and saying, "Okay, this is my vulnerable moment, and this is when I need to really insert myself with something motivational and tell myself, hey." That pain is only temporary. You only have 16 more miles. You can do this. It's going to go away, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, I, once I wrote about this, I started, there was this clip that went viral of a football player. He, he was mic'd up and he was giving himself a pep talk right before the game started. <laughs> and he was just talking to himself and he was like, all right, all right, this is what you've worked for. This is, you know, this is the game. Like you've put everything on the line for this. He was basically trying to act as a coach to himself right. to get himself hyped up for this really difficult thing he was about to do. You know, as, as you've interviewed all these successful, these smart people, what have you found, Paulina, that they know about relationships in particular mm. that, that the average person doesn't? The one thing they know specifically about relationships, but I think it applies to all areas of life. This is one of the common traits I found among a lot of these people is that it's it's actually a formula. Uh, it's consistency plus time equals trust. So the way to earn people's trust in any occasion, whether it's a romantic relationship or a personal friendship or a business negotiation of some sort, it's that Trust is never just granted, it's always earned. And the way you earn it is by being consistent over a long period of time to prove to people that you can keep your promises. And that is what builds trust. I've seen it time and time again. I used it in my own business with the profile. Mm. I started sending this Sunday newsletter in February of 2017. And of course, I've had a number of good and bad life events happen in the last six years, but I have not missed sending it a single Sunday. And that's because I know that especially now that people pay me for the newsletter, I know that if they pay me one week and then they don't hear from me, it's it's kind of losing that trust a little bit, right. chipping away at that. And I just always wanted consistent week after week. You know, if you pay me, if you back me, if you sign up for free, you're always going to get this newsletter in your inbox on Sunday morning. Uh, my 81-year-old mother a couple of years ago said something simultaneously brilliant and hilarious. Um, her, her children, her, her daughters and son-in-law, her grandchildren, we're often around the table. We're talking about subjects that my mother knows little about. I mean, artificial intelligence, for example, right? And she said, you know, I'm actually really smart. People just don't ask me the right questions. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I was reminded of that when I was reading your book, um, where you actually, I think it was a former journalism professor of yours that said, people yes. are only boring if we ask the wrong questions. Related to that, what have you learned about the importance of asking the right questions, or maybe put another way, uh, telling better stories. So your mom is brilliant. <laughs> Let's just reiterate yeah. that. Yeah. So basically, in it, what my journalism professor was trying to teach me is that a lot of times in life, we'll meet people and we'll say, we'll just dismiss them as the most boring person I've ever met, maybe because they answer with one word answers or or whatever it may be. But his point is that everybody has something interesting about them. It's, it just means that you haven't asked them the right questions yet. If you know your mom is in a professional opera singer, but you're asking her about artificial intelligence, you would never know about what else she does. You know that that makes her so interesting. So I've always I've learned that I almost see it as a game now. Where whenever I talk to people, I'm like, mm, I mean, I, I just I haven't hit on anything yet. I keep trying to ask different types of questions that lead me to that uh, really interesting nugget. And 
I learned this actually from one of the best storytellers that I know personally is Brandon Stanton, who's the creator of Humans of New York. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with Humans of New York, it's it's kind of a it's a blog of photos of people on the street in New York City that look like very ordinary people, but usually they have these extraordinary stories. Mm-hmm. And it's where I got the idea that the extraordinary usually hides in the mundane. Mm-hmm. And Uh, I asked Brandon, I was like, okay, so to tell these stories well, I know you have to have good questions. Like there's no (laughs) way that you're asking just regular questions like you and me. And he said, um, well, what he tries to focus on is the gap. What I mean about the gap is that's the gap is in every single amazing story Mm. is that he tries to ask them about what is the one thing, if you look back on your life, that you feel most guilty about or that you have the most regret about? Or how has your life turned out differently than you expected it to? Again, like that gap between expectations and reality. And and, and, and also, what is your biggest struggle? Because he told me that us as human beings, we like to look at success. We like to aspire to be successful like some of the people that we admire. But the thing that really brings us together and builds that cohesion is actually the struggle. And we empathize with each other's struggles way more than we do our successes. And so I always Mm. keep that in mind when I'm talking to someone. I'm like, I know that they have to be going through something right now, or maybe they're doing something in a different way than they thought they would be doing it. And so the, the interesting stories are found in those little gaps. You know, I relate to that so much. Early in my uh, uh, radio career, I was a broadcaster for 26 years. Uh, early in my career, I was taught, I would say mistakenly, to present yourself as, as, as if you've got it all together. Mm. And, and listeners will relate to you and they'll look up to you and they'll put you on a pedestal as if that's the goal to begin with, right? Uh, but then later, I got some very smart advice about halfway through my career. And that's when my career started to take off. And it was, no, 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 no. Uh, you need to be really you. You need to not be afraid to be vulnerable to a, to an extent. You need to yeah. not be afraid to show your warts occasionally because that's what people relate to. That's what draws people to you. Yes. I will say, Jeff, you have a voice, a very well put together voice. <laughs> like it's very soothing. And I'm like, he's got it all together. <laughs> Um, Maybe that's why they said that to me. I don't know. (laughs) No, but I mean, I think so. So I will say the vulnerability thing, I completely agree with, except for the fact that I think in recent years, we've kind of gone way too far in one direction. Yes, I would agree with that. You know, where some people just spill everything and it's, it's, it's just too much. And it's not asked for. And then that makes it look inauthentic because truly the people that I've known that I know that have gone through the most difficult traumatic experiences often don't aren't as readily, you know, ready to share those things um, as as some new podcasters are. Uh, But but I do think like as an interviewer or a person who's trying to get to know another person very fast, but also deeply, Mm. I I I do believe like even working at Fortune magazine, which is like very business and and hardcore, I would always drop in a nugget of something personal that would make the other person be more willing to share something back. Mm. And I think that that's how it works. It's more like a risk. risk, I don't know that word. It's more of I I share something and you share something back versus I'm just going to spill my guts to you and then go from there. Yeah, and as you do that gradually over time, the, those little nuggets, a little bit here, a little bit there. I mean, that's that's how those bonds are created, right? Exactly. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier liking to have my notes develop in an unstructured, you know, bottom-up type environment. Mm. Completely unrelated to that, <laughs> what does it mean to be a leader who leads from the bottom up uh, versus versus top down? Yes. So Robert Greenleaf popularized this idea of servant leadership, where he said that Mm. the leader's um, role is not to tell people what to do and to lead top down, but instead it's more to serve the people, the, the, the whole organization and the employees who make it what it is and encourage their ideas and put resources behind their ideas and encourage them to experiment, basically. And one really good example that I include in the book is Daniel Eck, who's the founder and CEO of Spotify. And he's very much a bottoms up leader. And, and he's aware of that. He he wants to, to build the company culture that way. 
even as it's become a global company now. And he says that there was a group that was working on a new feature for Spotify. And they told him the feature in a meeting, and he didn't particularly love it. It would be a personalized playlist for every user on the platform based on their music preferences. And he said, I mean, yeah, it's a good idea, but like, why are we spending all of our time working on this? I, I'm not sure that's that's a good idea. So he wasn't very enthusiastic about it, but <laughs> Even so, that group continued working on it, even though the big boss was not into it. Mm. And then Daniel says he was reading the news and he read an article that said Spotify launches its Discover Weekly new feature on, you know, personalized playlist. And he said that was the first time he read that it was out in the wild. And he remembers thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be an absolute disaster. And, and actually, it wasn't. It ended up being one of Spotify's most loved features. So it ended up being a spectacular success. But it's, it's two lessons here. One is that it wouldn't ever exist if this happened in a top-down organization where the CEO said, this is stupid. Why are we wasting our time and resources on this? Kill it. They would. Second, I think the most important lesson here is that you can tell what the culture of Spotify is based on this one instance, because if you work for a top-down organization where it's almost like like a dictatorship, mm-hmm. you would never ship a feature to the public without getting the approval of the CEO. You'd be terrified. Mm-hmm. You would lose your job, all this stuff. And the fact that they had the confidence to do that without notifying the CEO shows that it's very much the employees run the organization and Daniel is there to guide them and, and, you know, provide them with resources and money and capital to have their vision come to life. And I would say a third lesson, Paulina, too, is what does yeah. it say about uh, Daniel as a leader when he's willing to admit all these years later that he thought yes. it was a stupid idea? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Because most people would love to take credit. They would love to take yeah. credit and say, you know what? I greenlit that way before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, another Daniel that you mentioned in your book, and interestingly, you you share a quote from him that I also share with my cohort with regard to all the the knowledge coming at us day to day. And it basically says that the illusion of knowledge is worse than ignorance. Daniel Borston, I'm talking about. How do we avoid the illusion of knowledge in, in, in your estimation? So it's very hard. Um, I think the only way, the only way that I've discovered, because I had this exact question when I was writing the book, I was like, how do people do this? And I came to realize that you have to be so disciplined about it. But if we can almost invoke, I got this idea from Neil deGrasse Tyson, but if you can almost invoke the scientific method in your daily life, Mm -hmm. you could become a more logical, rational, just measured person where you don't only run on emotion and the the thought of I have knowledge. Because um, Neil deGrasse Tyson offers this thought experiment where he says, okay, let's say you're on the street and someone comes up to you and tells you this crystal or this potion will make you all of your ailments go away. You just need to buy it. Mm. And he's like, what's your reaction? Do you reject it immediately? Or are you interested and you actually buy it? And however you answer that question, he says both answers are wrong because Mm. you haven't even explored or allowed yourself to consider that there could be a fraction of truth in it or a fraction of maybe it's wrong. So you are assuming that you have all the knowledge based on your past experience to make this decision. But instead, if you ask questions and create some sort of an experiment to test whether this works, then you'll come to a more logical conclusion. You know, as as I read your book and and thought about all the people you you've talked to, very creative group of people. Oftentimes, creativity is is allowed to fester and grow during times of solitude, right? Mm. And during those quiet times. But then there's also those on the outside looking in, and maybe even some of these experts themselves and, and geniuses themselves who often find themselves combating loneliness. I would imagine. Mm. What have you learned about? combating loneliness in particular? And, and how do you view loneliness uh, versus solitude? How, how, how are those two different in, in your mind? So I've been weirdly obsessed with the idea of loneliness and solitude. <laughs> I think because I grew up an only child. And when we moved to the US, I didn't really speak English. I didn't have any friends. And I spent a lot of time alone. And I think as a child, I was probably lonely, but you don't experience it in the same way as an adult. 
is an adult, you could be by yourself and not have a ton of social connections and still be okay and, and, and be happy to be by yourself. That's solitude. But loneliness is the perceived idea of how the quality or the number of connections you should be having or what you should be doing. And one is chosen, the other one's kind of involuntary. I, I think I think about loneliness and solitude a lot because as a writer, writing is a very solitary endeavor, but I weirdly like love it. I, I cherish it. I love being by myself when I'm writing. I like sitting in the quiet. Um, but I get all of my ideas from being around people and talking to people. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel lonely. But there are a lot of writers and creatives, like you said, that struggle with that. And that's why, you know, that trope of the alcoholic uh, writer or, you know, mm -hmm. Ernest Hemingway, when he said the irony is that you write by yourself to better understand yourself. But then other people read your work and they misunderstand you and then you feel even lonelier. And, and it's, it's that kind of cycle. Um, but, but I do think, I think the difference between solitude and loneliness is the perception of the quality of your relationships. Mm. I want to go back to something I hinted at earlier with regard to all the information that's coming at us every day that we're bombarded with. When I talk to people about this, I make suggestions like practicing what I call selective ignorance. And that's, mm. you know, making conscious decisions about where you're going to allow content to come at you from versus not. Um, I talk about information dieting, you know, which is once you mm -hmm. decide on those sources, how much of each are you going to allow and making conscious and intentional choices there? And also something called JOMO versus FOMO, which you may have read about the joy of missing out versus the, the fear of missing out and kind of turning that whole idea of fear of missing out on its head. What advice would you give someone who recognizes that they're consuming too much information day to day, but still struggling with curtailing that habit? Yes. So when people, a lot of people ask me, oh, social media is terrible. Um, <laughs> you know, how do you do it? It's so bad. Uh, I always feel awful after consuming social media. And my answer is, honestly, mine is not. I really enjoy being on Twitter because I've curated the list of who I follow and who right. whose information I let come to me that, yes. that it's actually really useful. Same. Um, <laughs> right? It's, it's a great place. Yeah. Now, I, I think you're right in that for a lot of people, it's, it's almost an addiction or some sort of habit. So what I suggest is conducting a content audit mm. because a lot of us are, we're running on autopilot. We have no, as Elon Musk put it, a mental firewall to protect protect us from all of that nonsense. So the content audit would entail something like you sitting down and looking at what do I watch? What do I listen to? Who do I listen to? Who do I hang out with? I think a lot of people forget that the people you actually hang out with on a daily or weekly basis have a lot to do with your mental diet and your information diet, because the things that they're telling you, or you know, if you feel safe to express certain beliefs in their presence, that's mm -hmm. also another thing. Um, I, I'll never forget um, James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. He says, the reason it's so hard for people to change their beliefs is not because it's hard to change a belief. It's because what you're actually asking them to do is change their tribe. Mm. And changing your tribe is much, much harder. So I, I, I really do think that like if you can try to elevate even by 1% the things that you watch, listen to, or the people you hang out with and the conversations that you have with them, if you can elevate those things by 1%, immediately you'll feel better. You'll have more ideas. We all know friends who we can talk to, we can have small talk with, but it never goes deeper. And we never come out of it feeling recharged. Mm. When I have a conversation with you, and I'm assuming a big part of the reason you started your podcast is probably because you feel recharged after having these really great conversations with mm. ideas and things like that. Absolutely. If you can build it into your life, if, if you don't have those friends right now, but you want to be having these conversations, then start a podcast or do something that forces you out of that bubble and into interviewing really intelligent people or really interesting people. Um, it gives you like a job, like this is my job to do. So I, I really do think that we'll, we'd all become more interesting 
humans if we just elevated our information diets. I have people ask me all the time, Jeff, you've read all these books, you've interviewed all these interesting people. What have you learned? Like, what's drill, drill it down to one thing for me? And my answer is often, I've learned exactly how much I still don't know. <laughs> yes. The illusion of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a bit about uh, linguistic relativity. That's a term that uh, gets mentioned in your book. Uh, this idea that, that words we use to describe what we see are, are more than just labels, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So especially speaking two languages, I see it so often. Certain cultures that drink a lot have a lot of different ways to describe getting inebriated. <laughs> um, some cultures that are in very cold climates have a lot of words for different words for snow. Mm. And I, I think if you think about it from that perspective, it shows you what you value, but it also shows how the words that you use to describe someone can actually stick to them, but also they can stick to them in your eyes. So mm. if you label somebody a criminal, you're going to look at them and a lot of people who look like them as criminals because that's mm. the label in your brain. Right. And my, my thing is with the profile, with the book, with everything that I do, I think the one thing that I've learned over all these years is that Things are never black and white. There's always nuance. And uh, I learned this after I wrote this article. I turned it into my editor and he taught me a very valuable lesson, though I don't think he realized it at the time. <laughs> I thought the article was really good. He looked at it and he was like, call me. And I was like, what? He must be, he wants me to call him to tell me how amazing it is. <laughs> and he instead, he said, I can tell that you're thinking a sloppy because you're writing a sloppy. Mm. And what he meant to say is that I used a lot of absolutes in my writing, such as this person always does that, or this person never does that, or everyone likes this person, or no one likes this person. He's like, that's not how the world works. You need nuance. You need precision. You need to find the facts instead of speaking in these generalized absolutes. And I think a lot of us, if we don't discipline our thinking, we are left with, oh, all of these people are a certain type of person or, you know, I think Toni Morrison said like the definitions say more about like the definers than they do about the defined. I'm totally butchering this quote, <laughs> but basically the way I label someone says more about me than it does them in the way that I see the world. So I always, I always keep that in mind. And we're often making those judgments in seconds, right? And mm. and once that that first judgment is made, it's really hard to, like, like you said, undo that that initial judgment, yes. isn't it? Yeah. I, I want to ask you a question I hadn't planned to ask with regard to to just writing and just your view on on writing, as it's something you've been doing for quite a long time. Um, I love what Sanka Aaron's in the book How to Take Smart Notes says mm. about writing. He says writing is thinking, and something I tell my cohort is. If you're thinking without writing, you only think you're thinking. Yes. <laughs> would, would you ascribe to that mantra? Uh, yes. And, and usually I don't actually know what I think or believe until I start writing. Mm -hmm. And this book was written like that. Sometimes I would start with something and then I would read something else and be like, wait a second. Why do I think this way? I don't think that's right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then it would force me to question my own beliefs and my own things. But I don't ever know what I think until I have to write about it in detail. Mm. Well, before I ask a couple of questions that aren't directly related to the book, Paulina, what haven't I asked you about, if anything, that you want to make sure that you get a chance to, to share about? Only one thing, which is mm. something that I talk about in the introduction because it's something that I get a lot. Mm. The biggest criticism that I get for my work is, oh, you study successful people. You know, what do you know about success is one critique. Another is that's just hero worship mm. or that's just survivorship bias. A lot of people who tried the same thing didn't make it but you're focusing on the people who did. Uh, and my the, the, the way I wanted to frame this book, and you'll notice, is, is not that there's one specific person that we are just worshiping or idolizing or saying, go do 
live the exact same way this person has lived. Because like I said, success doesn't exist in a vacuum and and nobody Mm. has it all figured out. So for example, yes, Melinda Gates has some things to teach us maybe around philanthropy or things like that, but maybe she struggled in her personal life. So maybe we shouldn't take advice around that. I, I, I just think that the, the the whole point of the book, I don't define success as status, wealth, uh, material possessions or things like that, or, mm. or professional achievement. I define it as a life well lived. And a lot of the people in the book are people who have achieved some goal that they've had, then failed miserably, then learned something from that experience, then mm. achieved something else again or reinvented themselves in some way, and then used their life or their experience to teach other people or to share their lessons with other people. So my whole thing when I study people is that I like to read about their life, but then I like to look at, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like what they did here because it comes with missteps and compromises and all sorts of sacrifices. Mm. So it's not a one-to-one copy of how you should live your life. It's more of, I hope there's a small nugget of an idea in this book that sparks something in you or gives you an idea that you can take away from. It's not to idolize any of these people. Got it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you took the time to, to share that because I think that's important. Are there books when you think about all that you read over the course of your life that stand out as inflection points or, or books that just impacted you in a powerful way? Absolutely. They're always memoirs. Mm. Um, I largely read nonfiction with an emphasis on biographies and memoirs, mm. but the one book, it's called The Sun Does Shine. Have you read that? I have not. Oh, okay. It's called The Sun Does Shine. And I, I talk a little bit about his story in my book, but mm. his name is Anthony Ray Hinton, and he was on death row for 30 years, wrongfully imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. Yes. Um, and he was let go, yeah, after 30 years of being on death row and seeing like 52 people walk past his cell to get electrocuted. So he, the, the, the memoir is so remarkable in so many ways. Um, but it's, again, I'm like drawn to stories of resilience in moments where you don't see how this person will find a way out right. or a way to get back up again. And, and he somehow does every single time. And he was able to preserve his mind over those 30 years of living, you know, in a small cell and through various techniques, but he came out of it very, very resilient and, you know, sane. A lot of people Mm. start to go crazy. So I I think that one probably impacted me a lot. And I uh, studied his life and I wrote a profile dossier, like deep dive on him and then I included him in my book, but it, it's I, I like the the weird paradoxical stories where you just don't know how this person's going to make it. Well, uh, you're not the first person to recommend that book, so that oh. tells me I need to, uh, to to pick that up soon and, yeah. and check it out myself. Last question is a selfish one to a degree. Uh, what your processes or maybe philosophy or tools or any part of this knowledge capture and retention and and things that you come across that you learn about that you want to make sure you don't lose because it might serve useful to you later. What's that process like for you day to day? Yes. So people often ask me, oh, how do you, what do you do when you don't have an idea? And I'm like, I always have an idea because I uh, have baked it into my daily life. So I think a lot of people sit down, they're like, all right, what am I going to write about this week? And it's like, that's not how I do it because I know that if I do that every week, I'll I'll stare at a blank page. Mm. So what I do is I have in my purse, I have a tiny notebook where every day I'm walking down the street, I just, I overhear some random conversation. I jot down something that triggers my mem- or my mind about like an idea. Mm. And sometimes those things don't make any sense. Sometimes it takes me weeks to think, oh, wait a second, that conversation that I overheard and this thing that I just read. So so I'll give you a perfect example. I wrote in a, a little post about um, this linguistic relativity thing, but I wanted to know, I was talking to my mom and we speak in Bulgarian, but also in English. So it's like mixed in sentences. But I told her after a recent trip to Bulgaria, I was like, I almost felt myself when I was there only speaking Bulgarian, 
that I was thinking more rationally and I was, my personality was different, you oh, know? Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> then like I was much more introverted and much more not cold, but kind of cold than mm. I am here. And in the U S I'm much more extroverted, very warm. I think people would be very surprised if they met the Bulgarian version of me. And I was like, <laughs> is there something to that? Like, that's so weird. Yeah. Um, and so I started reading research on it. Like that, that was just an idea that I was curious about. I started talking to all my friends who were bilingual about it. And they were like, absolutely. Mm. In, in certain languages, objects, Bulgarian is one of them, but also Spanish objects have like a gender. So mm. a table is female, depending on. Yeah. Right. And right. the English doesn't have that. And then the other thing that I noticed, I was, I was particularly interested in the, mo in the emotional aspect of it. Could you have a different personality? And I read a bunch of research. It was found that in English, it is a much more, um, there's a lot of emotionally charged words. So for mm -hmm. instance, in Bulgarian, when I tell you what I think about something, I usually say, I think, or it is. It's more declarative. Mm. In English, the way it's developed, a lot of people say, I feel like, and by saying I feel like, you're already leading with emotion. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really interesting. And, and that was just from one conversation, just like one question came all this other, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a river of ideas. But you took the time to capture that initial question that yes. idea that you could go back to later and then develop. And, and like you said, you're not, when you do that on, a, on the daily, when you're doing that all the time, you're never starting with a blank page. You're never starting with a blank exactly. screen. You're, you're taking things you've already done, the baby steps, and just finding the through line oftentimes. Oftentimes, it's just collecting things and figuring out how to connect them together, right? Yes. And I think to your point, like I think the collection aspect of it, if you can make that not as a one-off event, if you can make the collection as baked into your life, yes, then you're always collecting. You know, you're always seeing the world through what I said earlier, like a kaleidoscope of something. Yes. Good point. Good point. Oh, fascinating stuff. So glad I asked you that question. Yeah. Well, Paulina's book again is called Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. And it's not only a fantastic book, I read it from cover to cover, including the acknowledgments, as we learned. Including the acknowledgments. Also fun to hold in your hands and it even smells great and everything. <laughs> uh, Paulina, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm going to go into Amazon on and change the thing to say that book smells great. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> I'll, I'll write you a review and I'll be sure to include that Perfect. phrase. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Hey, if you'd like to dig into this episode more deeply, like checking into those links and resources Polina and I talked about, maybe connect with her online. You can find out all the details at the show notes page for this episode, which is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 486 for episode 486. Would you believe that I have nearly every interview I'm going to publish between now and the end of the year scheduled? I know who I'm going to be talking to for the next several months. Boy, do I have some exciting people and books on tap for you. Like next week, we'll talk with Kelly Thompson. She's author of a book called Closing the Confidence Gap that I really loved. And the week after that, you can enjoy a return visit from New York Times bestselling author Dan Miller. In fact, our first ever guest here on the Read to Lead podcast over 10 years ago. He comes back as we talk about his book, An Understanding Heart. That and more on the way in the coming weeks right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Glad you joined me this week. Hope you join me next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.